Hi everyone, welcome to episode 27 of Conversations That Don't Suck. Today's episode is a really, really good one. We have Casper Turkile on, and Casper is a researcher at the Harvard Divinity School, and he also runs a podcast called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, which funnily enough, I was actually just talking about with a friend uh, a couple days ago here in Portland, and he brought up this podcast, and I was like, oh my gosh, I just interviewed Casper on my podcast, and he's going to be... Uh, he's going to be on the show this week. So um, Casper is a really, really special person. And he is also the co-author of How We Gather, which is a cultural map of millennial communities. And a lot of what he researches is how uh, a lot of young people are moving away from houses of worship, like churches, synagogues, mosques, etc., and how they are also still looking for these senses of connection and belonging and community and meaning. And how these two things are interacting and how can we have these spaces of meaning and create this meaning and connection and belonging in our lives when we are moving away from the very places that used to provide it for us. So we get into a really juicy conversation that I will just let speak for itself, but it was really, really sweet to be able to speak to my own religious experience. And Casper just knows so much about so many faiths because of the research that he's done. So it's really nice to really interesting honestly to speak to someone who knows so much about Judaism and so much about Jewish ritual and Jewish philosophers and um, really historic rabbis who isn't Jewish so it's it's really sweet to have a conversation like that for me it was it was really nice to uh, to just have all those things reflected back to me and also to hear so much about so many other faiths that I really don't know much about and to hear about ritual in Casper's life as a person who you know, he doesn't affiliate with one certain religion. And I think this episode is so special because, again, there are so many people, I would say many of the people in my life, even though I run very heavily in Jewish circles, so many of the people that I know say, well, you know, I'm Jewish, but I'm not religious. And, you know, I'm kind of spiritual, but I don't believe in God. And there's just so many caveats and so many disclaimers and so much hedging that goes on when we are talking about what our belief system is. And I frankly, personally, I find it really disheartening. I find it kind of exhausting to hear people just discount their belief system and discount the thing that they choose to guide their life. And I'm not saying you need to have a belief in God, but I think it's, um, I think there's something really powerful about just knowing what you believe in and, or, or at least knowing like I'm in a state of searching and like being really confident about that. I think that's also really beautiful. And I, I find it kind of exhausting that people say like, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And like, don't worry, I'm not a crazy religious person. And uh, you know, what if we just engaged more with like, what does it mean to be religious? And what are the more like truer, more honest versions of what religiosity could look like that maybe don't follow the traditionalistic, uh, like misogynistic ways of our ancestors or of the people who wrote these books? Um, I just think there's so much more of a richer, more nuanced conversation in that version of it. So anyways, this is a lot of what Casper and I get into and it's super beautiful. So I will just let all of that speak for itself. The last thing I will say is that at the time of this recording, my microphone that I used to record was in a suitcase that was not in my possession. And so I had to record with my gosh darn headphones that you just plug into your Mac and it's not the best audio. I think it's mostly fine. And luckily, Casper is doing most of the talking, rightfully so, because he's freaking brilliant and uh, and his mic was great. So I apologize for the less than awesome audio on my end. Um, but I hope you enjoyed the episode with Casper. It is full of so much beautiful 
brilliance and wisdom. We live in a world that is starved for more authentic connection. Better conversations are our first step in getting there. Welcome to Conversations That Don't Suck. I'm your host, Kyla Sokol Ward, and I'm here to engage you in truth-telling discussions about the super deep, always beautiful, sometimes ugly, and wholly honest parts of being a human. Real connection and empathic communication can feel easy and should be a part of our everyday lives. Most of our conversations suck. These ones don't. Hi, Casper. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to speak with you. Thanks, Kyla. Great to be with you. Yes. Will you tell me uh, what's been what's been the theme of your day so far? <laughs> the theme of my day is that I went to bed at 2 a.m. because I'm watching this incredible French spy thriller. And so honestly, like everything, even though I usually enjoy it, I'm like completely <laughs> exhausted. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love, you know, that's one thing that I really enjoy about you, Casper, is like your your social media presence shares so much about your whole life just every section of it and I feel like I love that that's the first thing that you're saying (laughs) yes very professional book loves loves French spice thrillers honestly the thing that I was thinking about yesterday that I that I put on Twitter was just how important the bathroom has become since COVID like it feels like an extra room in our one-bedroom New York apartment that is just like grown in importance it's like a change of scenery in the day to just spend 20 minutes hanging out there you know (laughs) oh my gosh yeah no I get it it's it's its own little like solace (laughs) Uh, amazing well I would love um I would love if you can tell all the people listening who you are and what you're about and I uh have so many things I could say about you but I'll let you introduce yourself first and um yeah and tell us about the book that you have just released and everything and we can flow from there you bet. Yeah. So I'm, uh, I, I guess I have co- a couple of hats that I wear, but every piece of my, my life and my work is really interested in this intersection between ancient wisdom and kind of religious history and practice. And then the world in which we live now, you know, in which more and more of us are less and less affiliated with, with religious institutions, but still have an interest in meaning and community and purpose. Um, and so a lot of my work is about finding ways to translate that ancient goodness <laughs> into ways that that work in the world that we live now. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a gay man, you know, doing that in a way that's very sensitive to the histories that, of, of oppression and marginalization and that's, that are often so embedded in those religious traditions. Um, so I, I do that in a couple of ways. I, I just wrote this book and I, I write in my newsletter a lot. Um, but I also, um, as a researcher at Harvard Divinity School, spend my time thinking about the changing structure of community and religion in America uh, and run a organization with my two co-founders called Sacred Design Lab, um, where we really try and think about what the future looks like in terms of our our spiritual and social lives. Um, and then I have a podcast uh, called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text uh, with, with a different set of co-creators where we read the Harry Potter books as if they were texts that could teach us about our lives. So e- each of those kind of is, is working in the same themes, but doing it in a different way. Oh, beautiful. I, I want to share with you that when I first came across your work and I've no clue what led me to it, but I <laughs> just no, no remembrance of it. Um, but I remember finding, I guess it was the website, your, the work that you do through Harvard Divinity School and, um, and seeing all of this talk about, yeah, how to create communities that mm. resemble the closeness that we had and sometimes do have still in religious institutions. And 
I, I sometimes get this feeling when I find something on the internet that like really deeply just resonates in my bones and mm. I get goosebumps all over. And I, that same <laughs> thing happens for me when I, when I found your work and yeah, mm. it's so, it's so powerful. And it's, I think for me, why it resonated so much is because Judaism for me is like, it's so important to me. And I also, uh, recognize the ways in which it's like that synagogues specifically are like really failing my generation and right um and I find it so tragic and uh just hearing how many people my age and people younger than me saying like they're just not interested in being a part of Judaism and yeah I find it like Mm. yeah really tragic I think there's so much like beauty and gift in in all faiths not just Judaism um but I but I mean chosen people people. totally (laughs) 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 yeah people are just like Locking away from from these religious labels and um yeah I'm curious actually like what you think of that like is that because I know you talk about this a lot like there are ways to find ritual and meaning outside of religion and yeah like is that is that the move that most people I don't I know you're not going to use the word should but um <laughs> is it is it more the work of us as like as individuals or as like communities outside of those institutions or mm-hmm. like should the institutions themselves just be doing better to keep us Oh goodness there's so many good points there and one <laughs> of the things I want to pick up there is what you said that the the move away from religious labels And that's actually really important to understand as we think about the trends that are happening. Very often we talk about the decline of religion, right? That more and more people are less and less religious. Uh, At this point, 40% of Americans, uh, of American millennials, when they're asked about what religion they are, they say none of the above or nothing in particular. Mm -hmm. And so it's a seismic shift in terms of how Americans understand their their spiritual or religious identity. For Gen Z, we actually think that number is going to be even higher, maybe as high as 50%. So so there's a real real sea change. But what you said is so important because it's not necessarily a a complete abandoning of uh, uh, religious practices. Two out of three unaffiliated Americans say they still believe in God or a higher power. One in five even pray every day. And so what's, what's being lost is the affiliation with an institution. What's Mm -hmm. enduring is this interest and longing for community uh, connection, meaning, purpose. And and what my work has looked at is how people are finding those things in places that are not ostensibly religious, but that nonetheless have these kind of unexpected spiritual connections. And so a lot of the the groups that I've studied are are fitness groups. So uh, Mm -hmm. SoulCycle and CrossFit most especially, but there's many others out there. Um, I mean, maker spaces also, uh, uh, kind of fan communities and, and conventions is another great example. And so all of these kind of new centers of community are fulfilling what might have been the role that a congregation used to play. And by that, I mean, not just offering a place for people to build relationships, but uh, you know, people getting together for Friday night drinks, people getting together for talent shows, raising money when someone's being diagnosed with breast cancer, uh, getting married, uh, hosting uh, a funeral in the CrossFit box, texting their SoulCycle instructor on a Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m. saying, should I divorce my husband, mm-hmm. right? Like these, these kind of things that you wouldn't expect to be happening in these ostensibly secular places that's the shift that we're starting to see in america in in this kind of big picture so what that means i think for those of us who kind of fit into that trend is to figure out okay um you know i might sit outside of a, a, a formal religious institution but what's the way in which i can still 
kind of build a set of religious or spiritual practices into my life that help me live the kind of life that I want to live, right? That help me be the person that I want to be in the world. Um, and so this is this is really what, what the book is all about, is to help people turn the things that they're already doing every day, the kind of habits and routines we have, to make them into more meaning-oriented rituals that are not just decorative, right? That are not just like fun and, and frothy, but are actually formative, that they shape who we become. Um, and uh, for me, as someone who didn't grow up with any sort of religious background, it was such a delight to learn about this kind of treasure trove <laughs> of, of spiritual practices that we can inherit and 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 adapt honestly um to help us do that mm, i love that yes i'm curious like hearing that you didn't grow up with a religious background there's actually a part of me that feels like without denouncing anything about being raised Jewish, like there's yeah. it, like almost feels some like jealousy of like, oh wow, you really <laughs> just got to like carve your own path. And and I sometimes wonder like with all of the love that I have of my faith and that others might have of their own, yeah, I wonder if it as a person who didn't have much of that growing up, if there if it felt like for you there was more flexibility or if you were like just yeah. as lost as all of us. <laughs> and, oh a hundred percent option too. <laughs> the uh, latter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but only because honestly, Kyla, for me, you know, I, I had that narrative of we were non-religious, right? We didn't go to church. I didn't know anyone who went to church. Uh, I think my mom had a big falling out with her best friend because she became super Catholic, right? Like religion was kind of suspect in, in not just in our household, but growing up in England, you know, the culture is just pretty different from the US. And so to be religious is kind of to be a little bit weird, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it was just, it was kind of irrelevant mostly. Um, but what I, when I went to divinity school, School, one of the real surprises for me was when I looked back at my childhood, which I'd, you know, I'd always, I'd always labeled in that way as, as secular. I started, I started to see the way in which actually it was deeply religious. It just never used that word. And specifically, what, what I mean by that is I went to a Waldorf school, a Steiner school, which I, I don't know if you're familiar with that model of education, but it's, it's very much about the holistic development of the child. And there's lots of creativity and nature and singing. Um, and, and there's all of these festivals that you celebrate as a school that are broadly within the Christian liturgical calendar. So, you know, we would go and sing at the local farm uh, to the animals on Christmas Eve. Um, we would, oh. you know, dress in all white to celebrate Whitson. And, you know, we, we'd, have, um, we'd have all of these rituals, a lot of them that were out in nature, that when I looked back at them now, I was like, oh, wow, this was actually a super solid kind of spiritual foundation. But because in America, we think of religion equaling belief, we often lose sight of the many practices that sit around or next to those beliefs and, and we kind of discount them. And so for me, it was a real, you know, looking back at my childhood, it was really a job of reintegrating the story I told about my life and saying, actually, I was raised with a whole set of spiritual practices that are really meaningful to me. You know, if I don't, if I don't listen to, to the St. Matthew's Passion during Lent, I'm like, it hasn't properly been springtime. You know, like there are these things that just really feel mm -hmm. important to me. Um, to feel at home in the world, but we don't really think of those rituals and practices as part of our spiritual identity necessarily. Um, so that's a long way of saying sometimes I wish I grew up with it, with it, with a tradition much more explicitly. But I think maybe the benefit of what I grew up with was was a sense of of access to, to traditions without them being imposed on me, um, which sometimes you know that that takes a couple decades to work through. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, wow. I, I love even that, like, the title of your book being called The Power of Ritual. And I, mm. I, for me, there's something about it that's, like, kind of provocative, even just that title alone, mm. because it's, like, the word ritual, I think, scares the shit out of non-religious people. And, <laughs> and yeah, these people who call themselves spiritual but not religious. Like, I think the word ritual can have this kind of, I mean, honestly, the first word that comes to mind with it association-wise is satanic. And it just ah! sounds like... <laughs> it's so funny you say that, Kyla, because now there's, like, skincare brands. And, like, I, I mean, like, th this word ritual is showing up in all these interesting ways in the culture. Wow. And honestly, it's, it's an unstable word in the sense that sometimes we use it next to words like habit and routine, and it just mm -hmm. means something that you do over and over again. And then, as you say, sometimes it means these, like, really esoteric and slightly weird, you know, kind of culty words. So yes. as a word, it floats all over the place. Um, <laughs> and the funny <laughs> thing is, actually, I didn't come up with the title of the book. Here's, a, here's an under-the-hood uh, uh, revelation. In the sense that I have written the book about reconnecting with, uh, uh, you know, really about connection. And so the, the book structure is really about practices that help you connect with yourself, with other people, with the natural world, and with transcendence. And I'd really focused on, on those kind of levels of connection originally in the title. But in conversation with the publisher, they pointed me to the kind of the rituals and the practices that I was uh, sharing with people on each of those uh, kind of chapters. You know, what, what are the rituals that help you connect with the natural world? What are the rituals that help you connect with transcendence? And, and that's when we oriented the title to, to ritual. And I'm really grateful that we did because one of the things that I wanted the book to do is, is for readers to feel a sense of spiritual commission, like a sense that you can be creative with the way that you shape rituals, right? That we can inherit traditions, but that we can also reimagine them and reshape them and, and adjust them uh, uh, in ways that are responsible and, and respectful, but also that, that actually are effective. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm glad that we ended up with it because I, it's opened all these conversations about ritual design that for me are just so juicy. Mm. One of the things I had highlighted actually in the book, and I just want to pull this up so I'm making sure I'm talking about the right thing. Yeah, it's that um, you say it's something along the lines of like that all of these things in the world are are changing all the time. Like uh, mm. you say, uh, but that nothing can take away our, our deepest connection mm. and like nothing can get in the way of that. And the reason that we have to do these rituals, <laughs> you say, this is exactly why we practice to help us remember. And yeah. I love that so, so much. And I think that's one of like the most beautiful things about ritual is that like, because you do it repeatedly, it, I think especially, and I know you and I just recently talked about how these rituals can mark time and, um, yeah. and seeing like, oh, the last time I did this ritual, whether this was yesterday or last year or whatever it is, um, is noticing like how have I changed since then yes. and, and allowing to see like how the world around you has been totally fluid while you're doing this uh, very static uh, repetitive mm. task. Mm. Honestly, it's one of the things that like, it's, it still makes me tear up because <laughs> I'm like, clearly I wrote this for myself as mm -hmm. much as anyone else. But like so often we think, you know, our culture is so obsessed with achievement and production and performance. And so often when we think about even, even like self-care practices, it's to like make us feel something or to like change us that we become something else than what we are. Mm -hmm. And it was such a game changer for me to think about these practices, not as changing me, but as just 
helping me remember what is already true. Um, and on my wedding day, you know, my, my now colleague, Sue Phillips, who officiated our wedding, um, you know, she said there is nothing that can, you know, take away the inherent belonging uh, that you have. I, I can't remember the exact wording that she had. It was much more beautiful than that. But mm. essentially it was like, you know, we are already bound to one another and nothing can break mm. that apart. And And all of these rituals are merely just reminders. They're like little calendar notifications saying like, oh, by the way, still inherently connected to all yes. the things, you know, <laughs> like, and, and so really it's, it's, the work is not on us. Like we don't have to make anything happen magically, but mm. it's about shifting our perspective and remembering what is already true. Um, and so when, when you approach it in that way, you know, every ritual becomes an opportunity to kind of cross that bridge from a perspective of isolation and separation to one that remembers our inherent worthiness connection and belonging um and and that for me is just such a it's such a comfort honestly that that that, that it's just about shifting that perspective that's that's what the ritual is doing mm. oh so rich so juicy will you will you share one or two of the of the rituals in your life that help you to do that or even yeah. the that you've heard the other of others doing that you think does accomplishes that same thing Honestly, some of the rituals I've heard readers tell me about after they read the book, like, are so lovely. Mm. My favorite one recently, I just, I, I just adore this. Um, a woman with her 10-year-old son would practice the, um, the examine every evening. Um, and this is a, a Catholic um, practice by, uh, really popularized by St. Ignatius, who invites people at the end of the day, um, to, to just look back on, on the day. Uh, and people do this already with kind of gratitudes, right? Like, what am I grateful for today? The way that Ignatius asks it is like, where did God show up today in your life? Where, 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 where did you experience the presence of God? Um, and so she, she does this with her 10-year-old son and then writes down his answers. They light a little candle before they start and then she writes down in this journal. And I was like, what a beautiful wow. ritual with your kid, right? Like yeah. at the end of the day. Um, but, you know, other people, uh, I mean, another one involving kids, but it's like snuggling before bedtime. That's a, a, like a sacred moment. To, and, and so that this particular parent like approaches his kids as they, as he says, good night, not just as like a functional thing of like making sure everyone's safe and well, and, you know, not going to have a crying fit, but, but to see that as a, as a sacred moment of connection, that moment when he holds them close and, and, you know, feels their feels their warm bodies in his arms and, mm -hmm. and like to treat that as a sacred moment. One, one of my mm -hmm. favorite personal practices, which is really inspired by the Jewish tradition uh, is the tech Sabbath um, that, that I have. Yes. Yes, I'm all about it. And, and, you know, for me, what was so important in developing this practice was reading Abraham Joshua Heschel, great 20th century Jewish theologian. Yes. Um, and, and the key thing that I really understood differently after reading Heschel was so often we think about rest as a time of recovery or a time of preparation for, for busyness, right? So that mm. it's like I'm recharging my batteries is the classic example that we have in our language. And Heschel says no, right? That the Jewish tradition tells us that the Sabbath is actually the apex of the week, that the work week is there so that we can have the Sabbath. And so for mm -hmm. me, it was like, oh my God, this, this 24 hours when I turn off my phone and I turn off my laptop and I try and stay away from, you know, the kind of engagement with screens and, and, and uh, you know, online communication, 
it's it's not a time to recover. This is a moment of like a taste of heaven. And mm-hmm. Heschel has this beautiful imagery that feels so powerful now, especially when we can't really move through space. He says we can move through time and enter a palace in time. That's how yes. he describes the Sabbath. I'm like, oh, I see the palace. It's beautiful. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and and honestly, like the more I learned about the Sabbath tradition, right? This is a time when you're supposed to eat delicious food and be with wonderful people and to make love on the Sabbath, mm-hmm. right? It's one of the mitzvot. It's one of the the, the kind of the, 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 the guidances uh, for, for how we practice Sabbath. It's about enjoying life to its fullest. And so mm-hmm. what I practice when I, when I've turned off my, my phone and my laptop and I've hidden them in the bookshelf so I can't see them and I light a candle and I sing a little song that I learned in summer camp, um, I, I, I feel like I'm kind of crossing that bridge into a different experience of time and something inside me just blossoms. Like I will try and write a poem or I'll sit down with my shruti box and sing and just, just because I've set that barrier in time or I'm observing that barrier in time, suddenly there's just like, creativity and and freedom that I feel in that moment uh, or in that 24 hours that just feels, um, it feels like I go on vacation. (laughs) That's the best way that I can can describe it. So that, that for me has been a real lifesaver because I'm such a striver and, you know, I'm such an Enneagram three. So like, it's, Ah. it's extremely important for me to have that barrier in my, in my productivity zone. Oh, yeah. But what about you? Like, what are, what are some rituals that have really shaped your life now? Ooh. Hmm. <laughs> Gosh. Okay. I actually was not prepared for you to reflect this back to me. I'm not sure why. <laughs> um. Hmm. Okay. Well, I can share one that I, that I shared with you when um, we were just speaking uh, the week, a week or two ago, which is that yeah. every morning um, I go up to my roof <gasps> and I yes. say, yeah, and I say the modani, which is the Hebrew prayer that is uh, giving gratitude to God for, for sparking the, the life inside your soul again. So there's the, for anyone listening who doesn't know, there's like a belief in Judaism that you have like an encounter with death when you go to sleep and that's mm. what makes you fall asleep essentially. And that like, when we wake up some, I'm very observant Jews will like wash their hands after they wake up because you've had an encounter with death allegedly. And uh, mm. I don't do all that, but I do go up onto the roof and like, yeah, be grateful that I got to wake up today. And um, yeah. And I like sort of, it's my way to also sort of greet the city of San Francisco and like yes. breathe with the city a little bit. And uh I think especially, it's actually been really nice, especially during shelter in place of like feeling so just really grieving uh, or yeah, feeling a lot of grief with like how disconnected I feel Mm -hmm. from San Francisco because everything that I love about the city is like non-existent right now. And so um, yeah, being able to just like have a moment with the city and I have a beautiful view from my rooftop and like okay like I'm still here the city's still here it's all good and um yeah I'm, I'm cool I'm alive today like there's probably a good reason for it I wonder what'll happen um <laughs> yeah that's one one I, I I love that example so much I, I think there's so much beauty in it and and I love how you've you know inherited that specific Jewish practice in part I think because Judaism is so rich in its um you know, the, the idea that the everyday can be elevated or sanctified in some way. Yeah. This is something Heschel writes about as well, right? Like that, that there's mm-hmm. a blessing for every occasion. Um, and so, you know, whether it's 
the first dip in the ocean or whether it's the first tomato from the garden yes. or the first, you know, or, or it's just a Friday night, right? Bless, blessing your children on the Sabbath, right? That there are so many moments um, for which Judaism has resourced us with a blessing. Um, and this is something I, I, I learned uh, from one of the, the, the women who was uh, ordained in the reform movement. I think she was the third ordained uh, uh, woman you know, she was sitting in a classroom uh, um, becoming a rabbi and being told, oh, there's a, there's a Jewish blessing for every moment. And she was like, not when I first got my first period, you know? Wow. And so, so that the tradition is both, <laughs> it's both complete and incomplete. Um, and so th that's, that's what I love is that we get to take the, the, the kind of the underlying truth of that tradition, right? The idea of a blessing for every moment and that we get to add and translate the tradition to say, oh, look, you know, someone going through a gender transition, we don't mm -hmm. yet have a blessing for that. Let's add that, um, right? That we that we get to help the tradition live in its fullness in this moment. And I think that's what you're doing in that, you know, morning practices. You're saying like, here is a moment of blessing the new day. Uh, and it's also helping me connect to this place that especially now I feel so dis disconnected from. So I, I, I just love that example so much. Yeah, and I love that you're saying that there, like, there's the um, the spaciousness. There's kind of a permissioning that, like, we can create new rituals and traditions within a very traditionalistic faith and culture and all these things. And like, and I, I think there's a lot of, uh, yeah, there's a lot of ideas around religion being like this thing that is traditional Absolutely. and will never ever change. And that's also one of the things to write about in your book that I think is so beautiful. Is like these traditions exist so that we can learn, like here's like we can feel connected to something that is like incredibly historic and has meant a lot to a lot of people and has helped a lot of people to like guide their life and bring yes. a lot of meaning to the world and also it has to change with us and like that's that's yes. our part of our work in like being involved in any kind of spiritual or religious thing and yeah i love that i think that's beautiful there's a congregation actually there's a synagogue in uh in san francisco that caters really beautifully to the LGBTQ mm. community and they change all of their prayers because God is always referred to as a male figure in yeah. and they change all of their prayers so that it's, uh, they like change all the wording around. Like instead of saying King, they say Queen and King and mm. like, and they have like non-binary terms for God. It's, it's really beautiful. It's amazing that, uh, and yeah, it creates a really beautiful inclusive space. And like, to me, it's like, that is Judaism. Like that is what yes. we're supposed to do with this. It's so great. And it's not just a more inclusive Judaism, it's a more accurate description of God. Yeah. You know, that, that, that it's, it's honestly, sometimes we talk about these things as, as like helping us, you know, live lives, you know, that it, that it centers us and not to get too theological, but like, I honestly think it's a more uh, orthodox interpretation of the tradition. Mm. Uh, and and you know, this is where I go into my risky territory, <laughs> but like, we have seen religion change before. I mean, take Judaism, mm -hmm. right? We have the current idea of a synagogue with a rabbi. And Judaism used to be a temple religion, right? It used to involve sacrifices and have priests. And then when the temple was destroyed, Jews had to ask themselves, what is essential about this? What is the thing that is at the, at the very heart of what we love about our faith and about our tradition? Turns mm -hmm. out it's not the building, right? Turns out it's not the particular clothes that we wear or the particular rituals that we perform. It's this sense that we belong to one another, right? The covenant of the people with God. And so you see this really, at least that's my interpretation of it, but, but, but you see that the creativity of saying, okay, well, 
if we can't all be in the same place as we're now in, di in a diaspora, we need practices that help us tell the story of who we are. Hello, Passover Seder, right? We, mm -hmm. And there's not going to be a priest at every one of those Seders. Um, so we need to give people a really clear instruction of how to practice it, right? Or, or we need practices like keeping kashrut or, or, or uh, even circumcision and Sabbath keeping that are not associated with place, but that are mobile, right? You can do those practices wherever you are. Uh, whatever we think about circumcision, that's a different conversation. <laughs> um, but all of which is to say that these things have changed before, right? Every tradition mm -hmm. was once an innovation. Um, and so I, I really want, want us to feel that we have an obligation to learn about the tradition. And then once we have that foundation, we actually have incredible permission to be playful and to, and to redesign and reimagine them. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> What, I'm curious um, what you draw as some, some connections between how lonely people in the world mm. are feeling, particularly millennials and Generation Z, uh, and, and what connections that might have to religious yeah. affiliation and, and spiritual identity and spiritual practices, things like that. Yeah, I mean, this is, it's such a big question. And honestly, it's, it's one that I'm, I'm still figuring out. But one of my hunches is that as we have seen the decline of religious institutions, especially the way in which they acted as kind of containers of community, a structured way in which people were in relationship with one another, uh, right? That you would see each other every week, that you had these rituals that you practice together. As those things have declined, especially for young people, even when we find, whether it's a Headspace app, whether it's a hiking club, whether it's a particular movie or book or something that we love, as we kind of build our own personal mix of spiritual experiences and practices, that the thing that happens is that the more we personalize them, the more they feel right for us, the less we have that is shared, especially across a community. And wow. so, I, I, you know what I mean? Like, I think we can even, we can kind of individualize our spiritual journey to the point that we actually feel more alone. <laughs> um, and so yeah. one of the big design challenges I think that is ahead of us is for us to find ways to be within communities of commitment that are not built on an assumed shared religious practice, identity, or even the language that we use to describe them. But instead that we build these communities, and I think this is why I'm so passionate about having a small group of accountability and support, that we have a small group with whom we travel. Even though you might be a Buddhist, you might be a nothing who grew up Catholic and now practices, you know, tarot, and I'm this, and you know, th th that we <laughs> still have a structure within which we can share what's really going on with us, um, and that we can be held to, to the way in which we say we want to live. Um, and, and that's why I think one of the ways that congregations really struggle to feel relevant and useful to people like me, uh, you know, I'm not a member of a congregation, even though I have <laughs> all of these practices and interests, because it, 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 it it's kind of set up for better or for worse that you show up once a week, you know, and a couple of times on the high holy days or, 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 you know, other major festivals and different, different traditions. And that that's going to be enough when actually, I think, especially millennials who are, who are searching want way higher levels of support and accountability. Uh, and so I, I think that's one of the ways in which there's this mismatch between our individual journeys and, and institutional priorities. Yeah, wow, that's so interesting that you've pointed out that there's kind of this like danger of individualism and in the way that we approach mm. spirituality sort of is, is what I'm hearing. Yeah, 
And and honestly, even sometimes a consumerism, right? Like that sense of, oh, if I buy this skincare product, right? Or like, if I yeah. buy this yoga mat, then, <laughs> or, or, or this new tarot deck, right? Or this beautiful crystal or whatever it is. Um, and I am so freaking guilty of that. Like, oh, this reflection journal will absolutely yeah. make me more. <laughs> and it's not to say that those things can't do that. But when, when we assume that we can kind of go into depth and, and meaning just by buying things, uh, we're going to be, uh, we're going to be let down. <laughs> and I, I think there's also, I, I just think of like how many young adults that I know. And I mean, this is also not specific to young adults, but people in general that I know that are seeking that more spiritual or maybe even a religious connection, some connection to God. And yeah. it, it is taboo to talk about. And there is this like, I mean, yes. God is also kind of a bad word, depending Ooh. on where I think in the U.S. you live, but it's like... Absolutely. Yeah, I think being in San Francisco, it's like such a lefty type of place. It's like, I say the word God, even in, to a room full of Jews, and everyone's like, what? Like, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's scary. <laughs> but, it, but it's honestly, it's, it's a problem of like, we don't have a shared understanding of what that word means. Right. And on a theological level, of course we can't because it's beyond words, right? But so let's mm -hmm. leave that aside. But in a very practical <laughs> way, you know, especially since the 90s, when religious language was weaponized by the religious right, right, to, to marginalize women, to marginalize LGBT people, uh, religion is not it's not a safe brand, right? Like it, it, right. It's, it's done such damage. Um, and so when we use a word like God, what can happen is that people, some people are going to hear, ah, oh, love, yes, you know, mm -hmm. wonderful connection. And some people are going to hear you're bad and shame. And yes. so it's it's really important. I, I very often with my colleagues, Angie Thurston and, and Sue Phillips and Sacred Design Lab, we joke that we talk in slashes. So we talk about the, the divine slash the, you know, the uh, mother earth slash God slash, yeah. you know, the transcendent, <laughs> because you, you need to offer different ways into that thing that is beyond language that that mm -hmm. sense of of you know the the mystical transcendence that is within and around us um th th that language often gets in the way rather than being a tool mm -hmm. that helps us connect uh, on, on what we're talking about mm -hmm. yeah and i also often find like sometimes when i hear people who like might describe themselves as agnostic they'll say something like oh well i believe there's a higher power i'm just not totally sure mm -hmm. what it is i'm like mm -hmm. yeah me too that it's god like you know i'm like <laughs> I just call it God, but like, I don't know. I was like, how does anyone know? And, but like, I'm okay using the word God and other people like yeah. really aren't, both are fine. And, but yeah, it's funny that like, we believe the same thing, but the word just like completely separates the, yeah. the viewpoint in some way. It, this is one of the things I love most about Islam is you have the, you know, the practice of reciting the 99 names of God. Mm. And although Islam like Judaism and, and Christianity, of course, uh, has, a, has a centrality of belief in one God, that these are kind of different elements of that divinity. So, you know, the most merciful, the redeemer, but also like the avenger, you know, like that, that, that there are all of these different elements of what that higher power or that divine mystery is really about. Um, and that um, John O'Donohue, my, one of my favorite uh, kind of theologians, uh, Catholic priest who then left the priesthood because he fell in love with a woman and couldn't stand the Catholic church as an institution. <laughs> but he says, you know, like the, the idea that it's not that we're all walking up a mountain or that we're pointing up to this one point at the top of the mountain. He says, we're all standing on the shoreline pointing to the immense vastness of the ocean, right? Wow. Like that, that there's a sense that it's this unknown thing that, that we can all have a sense of, but none of us really can capture fully. And I, I just love that image for God. Uh. Yeah, that is so beautiful. 
would you say, I'm curious also if you can speak to like rituals being a, uh, and this question is sort of coming to me, like thinking of the vastness of mm. the ocean and, and the unknown and how many people are struggling with like this uncertainty mm. that we're all feeling on the earth. Yeah. In what ways like ritual have been, rituals have been um, anchors for you and, or, or maybe not like it, maybe even if there's like, yeah, yeah, the uncertainty, like messes with all of us, no matter how many rituals we have in our lives, no matter how much community and faith. No and doubt. Stuff, um, yeah. I'm wondering if you can like speak to that connection a bit um, with like ritual and uncertainty or uncertainty. Yeah. That's a, that's a great question. I, the place my mind goes immediately is uh, to what I started doing when lockdown started, uh, which was counting the days since lockdown started. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so every morning I had a, like a sticky note on my, on my desktop and I would just update it to like day 53, day 57. Um, and was really inspired by the Jewish tradition of counting the Omer. Um, which is ca counting these 49 mm -hmm. days between the end of Passover and the beginning of the, the, the harvest festival of Shavuot, which, you know, I, I did not know that much about. And so I, I really enjoyed learning more about. Um, and for me, as I was counting those days, it, it gave me some sense of not that I was controlling what was happening or, or somehow knowing when things were going to reopen or when we would have a vaccine, but it, it gave me a sense of progression and like every kind of classic sports games manager, <laughs> someone is like, it's one game, you know, just, we're just focusing on the next game, right? Mm -hmm. We're not thinking about the title race, we're thinking about the next game. It was, it was one way that was just helping my brain do that, like just focusing on this day and the next day. Um, and my friend Lawrence um, uh, had such a great answer when I asked him, hey, how are you doing? He said, you know, what I'm trying to do when someone asks me that question is not to think of it in its enormity, but to check in with my body right now and say, how am I doing mm. in this moment? And so, I, it, it, because it was a different answer, right? When I, am I okay? Am I safe? Am I, am I doing okay right now? Yeah, I'm doing okay, mm -hmm. right? And, and th that practice of counting the days was one way that, that really helped me do that. Now, at the same time, once I got to like day 87, I'm not gonna lie, got pretty depressing. Uh, because it was really yeah. clear that, you know, like I could keep counting these days and it would never end. And so when I got to day 100, just a few weeks ago, I said to myself, okay, I think I've completed this cycle of counting. Mm -hmm. And that, um, you know, just that idea of like, that counting journey took me from what used to be normal to that dreaded phrase, the new normal, right. in the sense that we're just living in uncertainty. And I'm hoping every day for a vaccine. And, you know, I'm staying home. Uh, my husband teases me that I don't leave the apartment for three days on end, <laughs> you know, um, but it's that, that practice of counting was one way of, of having a ritual that just gave me a sense of containing the anxiety to some extent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it sounds just like so human, like, especially in such a, it's, it's over said, but like such an unprecedented world situation. And, um, totally. but yeah, it's like, we need something to grasp onto when like the mm -hmm. rugs just ripped out from under us. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, the, the thing I would say, you know, the other part of this is just, we can't do it alone. Yeah. You know, so often I think we focus <laughs> the pressure on like that, that our own personal rituals will, will, will save us. And I, I really, I really try and push us towards, you know, rituals that, that even if we're not practicing them at the same time in the same space, that we have some shared practice uh, with, with other people that are doing the same thing at the same time, even at a distance. Um, and that we, that we build communities of practice because 
Um, you know, I'm going to feel shitty some days and you're going to feel great. And then I'm going to feel great and you're going to feel shitty some other days mm-hmm. and that, that we, that we need each other both to sustain those practices, but also just to, to hold each other through, you know, through this wild and wacky journey called life. Yes. Yeah. So beautifully said. Um, well, I want to be mindful of our time, but I want to do two things before we close. One is I would love for you to tell all of the people where we can find more information about you and your work and your book. And then uh, to close, I would love to ask you some uh, some nice introspective lightning round questions. Oh, okay. I look forward to that. <laughs> so uh, the book is called The Power of Ritual, and you can find it at powerofritual.org. Um, and, uh, I have a newsletter every week where I write around spirituality, community, uh, culture change, and you can find that, uh, at casper.tk.com forward slash newsletter. Amazing. And I highly recommend that newsletter. It is like my favorite thing happening <laughs> on my Fridays. So it's a really, a really that, that's one of my sweet rituals is reading your newsletter Friday. <laughs> yes. That's, that's one that I forgot to mention. There it is. <laughs> Beautiful. Okay. Are you ready for your questions? All right. Here we go. Okay. Your first one is what is something that most people wrongly assume about you? (laughs) Um, That I am not interested in um, sports. I'm actually a big tennis fan and a big Leeds United fan. Nice, nice, (laughs) nice. (laughs) What would you, what would you, would you like people to assume? Like, would you prefer they assume that you're like a huge sports fan? I want, I want my like inner bro to shine. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) I want that for you too. (laughs) Thanks, Carla. (laughs) Beautiful. Um, What is something that you would like to be acknowledged more for in your life? Someone, my my colleague Angie recently said to me, you know, you really love learning. And I was like, Mm. do I? Oh, I guess I do. You know, I, I love to read. I, I, yeah, there's just, and that's something I've never really, I guess, adopted for myself to describe myself as someone who loves learning, but that felt really, really good. So that's, that's what I'll go with. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. That, that's actually one of the first, one of the big things that sticks out to me, like, as I learn more about your work, I'm like, you have to love learning, I think, to, to know as much as you do, but also like, to, I think with religion specifically, like the reason people, it's one of the reasons I think that people are so, can be so close-minded mm. when they become religious or, I mean, whatever, you don't need to be mm. religious to be close-minded, but like, it's, uh, yeah, it's like people don't care to learn as much as, as mm. they could. And there's so much beauty in like all these different faiths yes. and, or lack of faith, whatever it is. And, uh, yeah, so I, I mm. acknowledge that in you. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um, what do you think most people learn from you? Oh, that's such an interesting question. (laughs) (laughs) My mother is, well, I'm very alike to my mother and um, we're both real activators uh, to use strengths finder language. Um, So we kind of make things happen um, for better or worse, sometimes not having always thought it through. (laughs) Uh, And so I think maybe that's, I know that's what happens when I'm in a group is that I I kind of make things happen. and, and I, I, I definitely see people who've spent time with me picking up on that. <laughs> oh, that's great. Love that. Beautiful. And last question. What is one of your favorite questions to ask other people to help you to get to know them? Oh, 100%. Um, you know, when, when they've had an experience or they've done something, saying, what was surprising to you about that? Or what surprised you about it? 
because it, you always learn two things. You learn the thing that they were surprised by, but you also learn about some of the assumptions they had, mm-hmm. which made them surprised by it. Um, so it's it's one of my favorite. But honestly, I want to get better at asking questions. And I recently watched David Sedaris's masterclass videos, which I highly recommend. Oh, nice. And he says that he refuses to ask questions that people have answered before. So if you say, how long have you been driving for Uber? That's not going to get anywhere. You know, <laughs> so, like he asked instead, when did you last touch a monkey? Uh, you know, do you oh, have I any friends that. who are doctors? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> people are surprised by the question itself, which um, I'm really trying to lean into that, but it's surprisingly scary to, to go out there with a wild and wacky question. <laughs> oh, yeah. Question asking can be very, very vulnerable. <laughs> For real. Beautiful. Yes. Well, Casper, this has been such a joy. And I'm, yeah, I'm so grateful for you and for taking your time out of your day today to speak with me and and for the work that you're doing. And I'm in the middle of your book right now and really loving it. So yeah, thank you so much for all the things you're putting out into the world. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Carla. And for I honestly it makes me so happy to see all the work that you're creating, both in this podcast and and, and everything else that you're doing. So glad to be in this with you. Beautiful. Thank you so much. All right, y'all, that was the episode with Casper Turkile. Again, I really, really recommend reading his book. So if you are in the market for another book, I definitely recommend reading The Power of Ritual. And I will be back with you next week for the next episode. I love you. Thank you for listening.